within 24 hours, we knew where they'd originated and we'd started to pull all the videotapes and the FBI was certainly working with us. And, and we had a lot of that information. We had them coming right through the security screening checkpoint. This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learn how they navigated their way back. If all great change is preceded by chaos, then this podcast series helps us to make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank. Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank, and may lose value. Welcome to the day that changed everything. My name is Will Hall, and I'm the digital editor here at Maine Biz. Today, we're talking with Paul Bradbury, airport director at the Portland International Jetport, about one of the days that changed everything for him and for all of us, September 11th, 2001. Paul has been with the Jetport for 30 years, and in fact, was there on September 11th. We're going to be talking with him about the changes that began at the Jetport that day, that morning, and have continued ever since for the airport, for aviation, and for all of us. Paul, first of all, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. We're glad you're here. Yeah, pleased to be here, Will. Thank you. Maine has been served for a long time by a lot of different airports, each with a different niche, a different market. In the Portland area, the jet port is really the go-to. And I was wondering to begin with, if you could just tell us a little bit about Portland International Jet Port and how you came to work there, how you came to be there on September 11th. By all means. So first I should probably mention that it is a jet port and why people always kind of ask that question as well. And back in uh, the late 1960s, when it went from uh, Portland Municipal Airport to becoming the Portland International Jet Port, we had the Yellowbirds flying for Northeast Airlines, and they were our first jet. And we wanted to really push the jet age, I think, back at that time. No, I was not here. <laughs> I, I wasn't here, but it is a, it is a great thing. Perhaps it's, it's been a touch campy over the years, but, but there is another Portland International Airport, and that's Portland, Oregon. So it is very nice that we are, and you can just say Jetport, and basically there's only one in the country. So we are very unique based on the decisions back in the late 60s and pleased to be a part of it. I actually started at the Jetport way back in 1992. So it will, it will actually, it was August, so it will be 30 years in, in August of 2022. I'll have been 30 years. Wow. And, and what, a great, what a great opportunity to work on and build projects and really embrace the region with what we see now. Most come and they, they're always amazed now, the ones that have never traveled to the Jetport, to see that it, you know, that it is a large you know, multi-gate, ready to serve based on an expansion that was completed back in 2012. Well, there are some tremendous things that I've observed at the Jetport over the years. But you know, when I 
think about aviation, I think about air transportation, I I can't think of a darker day than September 11, 2001. The horrific attacks killed over 3,000 people in the United States. Prior to that day, though, what was what was life at the jet port like? What was working there like? What was the industry like? It, it is a great industry. And even post, it remains a great industry, obviously. But it was a lot has changed. And I'll kind of set the scene in a bit. But going in to this day, our peak number of operations occurred way back in 1998. People wouldn't recognize that, but an operation is a takeoff or landing, but aircraft were much smaller then. So there's been this thing, this phenomena post 9-11 of what we call upgaging. But back then, the mass part of the fleet was 30, 50, and 70 seaters here at Portland. So a very busy 130,000 annual operations, so annual takeoff and landings. So a very busy in terms of flights place. So smaller planes going shorter distances. And I'll, and I'll touch that in, in a bit as we, as we discuss really the day that did change everything for a lot of us in aviation. And what I, I imagine some people aren't aware of or may not fully remember is that that the jet port was affected, obviously, like air facilities all over the world were affected. But the jet port also had a, kind of an awful, un unwanted role in the events that transpired that day. Can you talk to us a little bit about what happened and what the morning was like, how things sort of unfolded? So it, it's very interesting. It was a Tuesday morning. We had done our normal thing. It was 8.30 a.m. staff meeting. So we, we'd all grouped up to be there at 8.30 a.m. It was for those in an air traffic control tower, they used the term severe clear. It was a beautiful morning. It was a perfect day for flying, uh, pristine severe clear day so we all are doing our normal thing grabbing the cup of coffee mustering in the conference room and then at you know shortly we we all know now that the 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 first hit to the world trade center was at 8 46 a.m in the north tower but we was shortly just a few minutes after that somebody knocked on the conference room door and said a plane has hit the world trade center we thought it was just a small general aviation, you know, a small plane. Nobody thought it was a, you know, full, full size commercial aircraft, nor one that was full of fuel, fully laden with fuel destined for Los Angeles. I would learn that later. So we didn't think much of it. And then obviously 903, the South Towers hit. And now we know all of us recognize very quickly. And we wheel in one of the big old, you know, we don't remember them now, but Cath Road Ray Tube TVs. <laughs> gets wheeled in on a, a, into the conference room. And, and you could have dropped a pin drop once the images started to, to roll in to, to all of us and, and the sheer weight of, of what was going on happened. And, and, and then, you know, there's the next hit with the, with the Pentagon. You know, as these things are rolling out, then the FAA, you know, shortly after 11 a.m. has to make the decision to do the first ever unplanned landing of every aircraft in the sky hmm. 4500 aircraft in the air in the airspace that all have to be grounded and they did it by 12 16 p.m just afternoon the entire country's system has been grounded wow. and it's eerie 
If you were at a conference, some airport directors were literally at a conference that had been pl- that was happening that week, and uh, they couldn't get home. I mean, the system was shut down. Wow. And the U.S. was under attack. Looking back at that day, because, as we learned later, a couple of the hijackers originated their their journey that morning in Portland. Was that was that something that was known at the time, or did you connect the dots pretty quickly? Did that change what the Jetport was doing that morning, or was that something that was only really, you know, discovered later? How did that How did that happen? So great question, and we remain to this day the only ones that caught Ada on CCTV image. Much different back then. This was videotape that was multiplexed, but it wasn't that morning. We were obviously all security protocols and everything was being evaluated. Within 24 hours, we knew where they'd originated and we'd started to pull all the videotapes and the FBI was certainly working with us. And and we had a lot of that information. We had them coming right through the security screening checkpoint. We, you know, the, the ticket agent at U.S. Airways at the time had, had also remembered the individuals. So, it, and we do have, to this day, our airport security manual, and we have something called an airport emergency plan. And these things are already being activated. They're generally for on-site activation, but they include terrorism and things, but a lot has changed as you would guess now, you know, our plans back then were all public. Now we have sensitive security information. It's SSI, the, the, the plans that would, that would deal with our security. But just to take a step back, this was truly a paradigm shift. Everything that we were taught back then was your plane is, is, is taken, you're taken as hostage. Here is what you do. Here are the behaviors that you do. Follow instructions, do what you're told, and you may get through this alive, right? The hijacker might want to, they'll get it, get to another airport. They'll make demands that took advantage of that paradigm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, so the, the, the methodologies at play on 9-11 struck right at the heart and took advantage of that paradigm and used it to turn a commercial you know, commercial airplanes at least three times into guided cruise missiles. The, the brilliant thing here is that humans, they, they learn quickly. And by the time communications, even back then when it wasn't as easy as today, the, the people on the fourth flight knew mm-hmm. and took action. So, so even see how even the life cycle or the half-life was a matter of minutes and less than hours before our behavior to a terroristic hijack completely changed. And, and that is the nature of, of people that we can learn that quickly. So, so that methodology for terrorism would never have worked again anyway. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean we want planes crashing, right? right. So, so what came out, with the, the, one of the first things that came out was the reinforced cockpit doors, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, you, couldn't, you can no longer break into a flight deck. Yeah. Uh, you can no longer interact with the pilots on the aircraft. And, and the U.S. even took it one step further in that you need two on the flight deck at all times in the United States behind that reinforced cockpit door. So, And we learned that the hard way in Germany when a single individual in the flight deck crashed the plane mm-hmm. with no one behind the reinforced cockpit door with people knocking, trying to regain access to the cockpit. Mm, sure, there are 
a lot of, there are lots of examples of learnings that we've had since 9-11. And I, and I want to get back to those, but just sort of stepping back to that morning and that day, um, was there a single moment when you said, you know, uh-oh, this is a much more serious problem than even we anticipated when we turned on the TVs. A moment when you said this is like something that we've never experienced before. Yeah, Flight 175 to the South Tower. Everybody's jaw, and, and again, it was a pin drop, but we knew that the commercial aviation had been hijacked mm. and in in the u.s was was at essentially at war mm -hmm. with a, with a terrorist attack and that's really the the faa also and things started to happen quickly i mean to this day we can't imagine how efficiently and safely keep in mind these are in all different stages of flight yeah. 4500 aircraft all and and it's not you just can't arbitrarily land them all it was an unbelievable logistical challenge and the fa did it amazingly well and 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 you, to watch because even back then we you know you show they would show the images of the scope and, you know and it's a crowded u.s airspace and then it's silent the advisory went out at 1106 and by 12 16 p.m everybody's out of the sky wow I, I that is it. just mind-boggling, even for a non-aviator, just to hear you talk about that. You've painted a, a very vivid and quite horrible picture of what was what must have been going on that morning. We're going to take a, a quick break and uh, come back in a minute, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit further. Mainers have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities, and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. And maybe in hindsight, it made them feel safer to fly, but I don't know. I, you know, I can't remember. For me, it was a shock. It seemed like we were in, uh, you know, a military curfew. Welcome back. I'm Will Hall of Maine Biz, speaking with Paul Bradbury, Airport Director at Portland International Jetport, about a day that truly changed everything for him, for all of us, on September 11th, 2001. Paul, you were just speaking about the initial hours of that morning and how almost immediately the FAA sprang into action, the, the jet port was springing into action. There were a lot of things happening. Can you tell us kind of the next steps? How did things unfold from there? Sure. I mean, you have the attack on the World Trade Center and then the Pentagon and then the final crash in, in Shanksville, Pennsylvania, you know, and then the, the big mass exodus from the skies. And really keep in mind, even the international flights that would normally be coming to all these destinations that the U.S. wasn't letting enter the airspace. I mean, people uh, are stranded in Canada. People are stranded, you know, coming across to Halifax, took a bunch of flights from, from Europe. Uh, and they, at the, at the time there were stories of them welcoming 
strangers into their homes because there was no place for everybody to go. These planes were destined for their normal, uh, you know, across the U.S., but they come across the pond, which is the Atlantic, and they aren't allowed into U.S. airspace, mm -hmm. and they had to be accommodated. And the planes didn't restart immediately. Even a week later, we were only at half the operations. And, uh, and I can't remember on the breakdown of domestic versus international, if there even were international. But all of that's happening. The FBI, they're starting to grab the intelligence on the individuals. We're compiling our, once we had figured out that we had passengers on that flight and Mohammed Atta was on it, we're pulling that information and, and they're backtracking. People will remember the stories, backtracking all of that information on what they did 24 hours before boarding. So all of this is, is going and and also what's going through every, everybody's mind, you can guess is how does this never, never, never happen again? Oh, sure. The, you know, the transportation security administration before that, the FAA handled security through what was called the CASFO, the civil aviation security field office. And, and the FAA had to help give birth to what became a whole new, you know, the Department of Homeland Security oh, sure. and, and ultimately Transportation Security Administration. So what changed a lot, really, before 9-11? Your bag, your checked bag wasn't screened before it went in the belly of the aircraft. It, it was just loaded. So shortly thereafter, they did positive bag ID. We very quickly rolled out that if you, if you didn't get on the plane and fly, at the last minute, your bag would be pulled off, right? Because they were just looking for what's the next, because that's the other thing. This terrorism hijack paradigm happened. So what other things are we not paying attention to? Mm -hmm. We knew from Pan Am years prior that you could, you, you could put an explosive on an aircraft and bring down a plane. And we still weren't doing uh, anything in the belly. And then what came later it still took years, right? But was originally they were lobby mounted, but all of that belly freight was screened in the explosives detection systems. Mm -hmm. But you'd have to go, you'd check into your flight and then you'd carry your bag to this other machine and the TSA would take it from you. They'd yeah. feed it. Then the TSA would have to manually. And it wasn't until 2012, a decade later, you know, almost 11 years later that we, it was late in 11, that we had the inline baggage handling screening machines that we have today at Portland. Yeah. So that change happens. You could carry a pocket knife onto a plane prior to 9-11. That was not an issue. You were allowed to have that on your person. 9-11, uh, nobody thought you could hijack a plane with a box cutter. So let's take a look at what that means. You have to be, prior to this, you could show up a half hour before your flight. Post 9-11, the whole security process changes we say 90 minutes or two hours before your flight. Mm -hmm. That completely changed the market for aviation. People don't realize this. Before 9-11, you could fly from Bangor to Portland to Boston, all on an MD-88. Wow. A 15-minute flight to Boston, right? Yeah. And uh, American Eagle was running flights to Boston on the hour. Bye-bye. All yeah. gone. Yeah. Because if it's a two-hour drive... You no longer fly. We don't even think about this anymore. But that whole short haul market evaporated post 9-11. Yeah. So today, if it's less than a four-hour drive, people don't fly. That's a, a very good point. Like a good example of the way our world has changed, the way we travel has changed. 
And it must have been a profound and, and fundamental change for, for the industry. What was going on at the jet port? I mean, starting with that day, were there things that you and your team had to do very differently that you had to do that day even? Things that were more challenging for the jet port, uh, perhaps compared to other airports? So the, the screening, I think people were pretty impressed that we actually had, that our CCTV was that advanced actually to even have images of these. But again, the paradigm pretty, I mean, the, uh, what was allowed through a screening checkpoint, very, that was getting rolled out pretty quickly. By the end of September, it took the whole month, right? But by the end of the month, and we thought prior to the pandemic, we thought this was the most that you could ever shut down aviation. Who knew, right? But this was unbelievable that it took literally three weeks to get the system back to where it was on September 11th. So, you know, within a week, we were still, you know, at half capacity. So what were, what were we doing? I mean, so they changed right out of the, the gate. They were already looking at the changing of what you could take through the checkpoint. And that was getting done in real time and following that very aggressively. Remember shortly as this started to regroup, remember how things changed that suddenly we had the National Guard in our airports all armed with machine guns. Mm -hmm. People forget that too, right? Remember the National Guard came down, we had them stationed throughout the airport as we're restarting flights as a show of force. And, and I can't even remember now how long they were on, they, they, they were on that detail. I can remember how shocking it was, how difficult it was just seeing armed security in, you know, a local airport. I imagine for you and for the, the team at the jet port, this must've been just having that type of presence, having things be so upended. It must've been traumatic in itself. What was that like? You know, I, and I think it was especially traumatic for those that actually interacted with the auto, which we did yeah. have that one ticket agent, one of our ticket agents that did. And uh, I have to tell you that it was a sad day for me when the, the way we greet our passengers is with armed, you know, national guard yeah. members in full uniform, you know, full gear yeah. with a machine gun on the roadways, at the doors, at the escalators as you go up. Mm -hmm. But I think maybe for, for some at the time, it also may have been reassuring. For me as, a, as an airport you know, staff member, it was terrible. But I think maybe for the general public, you, you've got to look for their psychology. Maybe it was very good that, that we're protected, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. this is going to limit the ability for somebody to do what just happened. And maybe... In hindsight, it made them feel safer to fly, but I don't know. I, you know, I can't remember. For me, it was a shock. It seemed like we were in, uh, you know, a military curfew. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe, and especially in a welcoming place like Portland, like Maine, it's at least the last thing I would ever expect. It, it must have been a, a, a complete disruption. In September still, you know, and it goes right through October, but that's still part of our tourism season. You know, yeah. it's the leaf peeper season. Mm. And it just was so foreign to us to be on this state of lockdown. It, 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 you just, you know, when you're, when this is welcome to vacation land time for all those people trying to see the fall foliage, you know, right as things reopened. But yeah, it, it, but it is hard to say. And I'm sure many people felt reassured. 
that the, the government was was helping, you know, was working to keep the whole system safe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, this is fascinating to, to, to hear, Paul. I, I know it's difficult to probably for many of us to think about that day, but hearing you describe it is is helpful for me and hopefully for our listeners. We're going to take one more break and then we'll be back in a minute with Paul Bradbury from the Portland International Jet Court. Maine Biz is Maine's business news source in print, online, and in person. We inform, engage, and connect you to the business community throughout Maine. Subscribe to Maine Biz products today at mainebiz.biz. I think what we find, especially in a moment like this for the United States, is that people come together to achieve unbelievable unified greatness and people just doing their jobs in, in maintaining was unbelievable here. Welcome back to The Day That Changed Everything. I'm Will Hall with Maine Biz, and today we're talking with Paul Bradbury of the Portland International Jetport about September 11th, 2001. Paul, we were just talking about the enormous changes that began that day at how in a, in a very quick space of time, you know, life was, was upended for all of us, but especially the aviation industry for air transportation and professionals like yourself and the folks who were on the ground working at the, at, at the jet port, the way they did every day. When you think back to that day and the way events unfolded. Were there examples of adaptation, the ability to sort of, you know, respond quickly on the fly, so to speak, things that you and your team did to, to deal with the situation that were really sort of a testament, I guess, to, to resilience and, and the, the skills that they bring to a situation like that. Yes. I can't remember now how many, what we took for diversions. But there certainly were some. In the terror of the day for staff at all levels to accommodate and give those planes a safe and professional location to land that weren't planned to be here necessarily was, and again, you also have to just realize that everybody is still facing the unknown in real time. No one, no one had the intelligence on, was it for is, are there more? And that is really why the FAA had to ground every plane Mm -hmm. because there was no way to know where is the final needle in this haystack of 4,500 planes and they're all coming. And when, so even when you're taking those emergency, so to speak, because everything was an emergency grounding, I already mentioned how Herculean and how unbelievably professional the FAA was that day. But the same is true of airport, airline, contract security, all efforts, because who knew oftentimes these type of events are followed up with counterterrorism too. Is it just in air or are they now planning explosions mm-hmm. outside of airports? No one had the intelligence, mm-hmm. but no one abandoned post. Mm-hmm. No one stopped being, you know, stopped what they knew was right. And I think maybe it's hard to remember back to 9-11 and how unbelievably anti-partisan it was for a long period of time post 9-11. Mm-hmm. That really the country was 
together in response to an event. Unbelievable. And, and it was unbelievable to see in all the men and women that were working here that day in all different roles. Again, there was no TSA, but there was still security mm. and they still had to do their job, both checking baggage and on the curb mm. in Portland PD and, you know, the baggage handlers, they don't know that there wasn't something placed, but everybody continued to do it. And then you started to learn, right? The, the, the layers of the onion over the next 72 hours really started to unfold pretty quickly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that intelligence. Unbelievably so, really. It sounds like there were really some heroes and not just the heroes that we saw on the national news, but, you know, maybe some heroes right at the jet board who were doing their job and uh, doing it in the face of a very terrible time. I agree. I, I think what we find, especially in, in a moment like this for the United States, is that people come together to achieve unbelievable unified greatness. And people just doing their jobs in, in maintaining was unbelievable here. Yeah, yeah, I, I can only imagine. Um, looking back now, what has been the, the, the long-term largest impact do you think on aviation as a result of 9-11? Sure. I, I do think the development, and, and again, 20 years in, and I will knock on wood, we haven't had a similar attack, right? Yeah. So it does seem like the mechanisms have worked and, and that's the creation of the Department of Homeland Security and even how the organizational structure, federal security directors, the whole shifting because the, you know, that is, that security is, is its own function. The, you know, I mentioned reinforced cockpit doors. I mentioned the inline baggage handling systems for explosive detection screening. Now we're doing uh, tomography, you know, with the, with the new, it's the newest level of the EDS. So that's, so it continues. I mean, cause again, what people don't realize is there to, to this day, right? There are no end to people that want to do harm. And, and we here in Portland are getting another screening lane and we will get the first round of that new technology for screening baggage. So a lot of huge changes and, and ones that you and I aren't even fully aware of, right? In terms of the intelligence community. Sure. I only see a very narrow field from the the sensitive security information that's shared with me, mm -hmm. but, but knock on wood, it's, it's worked is, is at the end of the day, 20 years later, it's safe. And I can come through the terminal on 9-11-2021 and see children that never knew 9-11 and, and are oblivious to it and going about the business of a democracy in travel. Yeah. Yeah. How about changes for you? as a professional or, or changes personally, are there things that you've learned and sort of takeaways that you've had from that experience 20 years ago? You know, sure. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot for me personally in, in engineering at the time, people might recognize, and, I, and I'll try not to get too nerdy here, but a lot of really interesting to me requirements came out, everything from blast incident prevention plans and things that we don't normally wouldn't consider when we're designing buildings and thinking about security. Um, you know, everything's a plastic when you start talking shockwaves, everything crumbles, everything has a certain level and, and how we design the protocols around that have been, were, were personally and, and professionally really challenging. 
on how we even designed the uh, the terminal expansion back in 2011. Oh, sure. Okay. And, and how we uh, we separated flows and and how we we readdress you know the the look of of aviation. It, it is fundamentally changed and it will continue. Most of it, people don't see. Mm. I mean, they don't see that outbound baggage handling system that takes up 20,000 square feet and, and costs, you know, just the system is $10 million. But then those CAT scans that are scanning their bags all in automated fashion are millions of dollars individually. And, and we have three of them mm. down there. And they're not that far from the medical grade CAT scans, right? <laughs> They're very, they're looking for really dense uh, organic material, also known as potentially a, a bomb or explosives. And, and then the system automatically pulls that bag out of the line. Mm -hmm. And if need be, it goes to a, uh, it, it can be resolved by a TSA agent through technology on a screen. They can recognize what it is and send it through after looking at the three-dimensional image and, and rotating it. Mm -hmm. uh, or it goes to another TSA agent's lab. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. you know, to be manually screened. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's all happening seamlessly. And the technology wasn't up to the task yet. You know, yeah. Available technology. Now we think of Amazon and logistics, right? We can do all kinds of stuff. And, and I imagine there are lots of examples of that where the the technology, the the changes, the, the things that we're able to do today, and and I, I imagine sort of take for, for granted, just they weren't in place 20 years ago. They weren't in place 10 years ago. It's it's a completely different world. Again, as I opened, the flat screen TV did not exist. Wow. So think about what that means. Even at the, when you're doing an x-raying a bag, right? It was a cathode ray tube, a big clunky, oh, you yeah. know, not that great a resolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. You know, the things that we, you, that we do, I mean, it's true. We, we do take a lot for granted. You know, just on a positive note, the, uh, you know, there's a lot of technology changes that are happening right now. I mean, we talk next gen, but advanced air mobility is the big thing. So I kind of opened with the loss of air travel for less than a four hour drive. Yeah. And I didn't want to leave your listeners on kind of that, that negative note, which has been my post 9-11 life, but there are new electric vertical takeoff and landing that will be very soon that we call advanced air mobility. Wow. They could move people in that shorter distance, that hundred miles, you know, up to a hundred miles. And it could be the, the, the next Uber, yes. the Uber of the next decade. Right. And I know oh. Uber is one of the heavy investors oh, in some wow. of these advanced air mobility oh. designs. So it's, it's exciting to, to, to think about that and thinking about some, a positive future uh, ahead and what's to come. When you look back now, do you think we were naive 20 years ago about the world, about the risk of terrorism, about the way we kind of moved about the country or about the world. Were we naive or is it just sort of a, a learning process that we had to go through? That, that's a, a great question, Will. And I think there, there was certainly some, you know, I want to call it, I, I, we can call it naivety, but, but also I, I do think the the paradigm was taken advantage of. I, I guess to your point though, there was certainly a naive approach to checked baggage. Mm -hmm. There's no question in my mind, mm -hmm. we knew that one because mm -hmm. Pan Am, Pan Am had already happened, oh, really? you know, on checked baggage. Yeah. And, and uh, sometimes we're slow and naive, you know, in rollout, you know, 
the, the, the analysts will say, oh, but that will cost all of this money. But in hindsight, right, we learned that, no, you can't look at these things that way. Sometimes you're right. We're naive and we think we have this, this cushion and, and it had been very safe. And when there was a hijacking, nobody was hurt mm -hmm. in this country. Yeah. Right. And, and we're all very good at saying, oh, we don't want to spend that money until then we, we learn that, that you, you know, there is no choice. Yeah. Lastly, I guess for those of us who, who don't work in aviation, are there lessons learned from this whole experience? Things that, that you've learned, things that you think the aviation industry has learned? Yes. And, and that's so in aviation, I think we all recognize, and we, we have something now called safety management systems, which isn't a regulatory requirement yet, but it's, it's SMS for short. We recognize now, and I think we have it on the security side as well, but that's the idea of continuous improvement. And, and now we have that. It's unfortunate that 9-11, it took 9-11 to take us there on the security and, and intelligence side. But now we are continuously improving. There's no, there, it's not static anymore. It is very dynamic. Mm. And this is something all of us can take in business, right? We all know that if we had in aviation, the same safety or security metrics we had in the seventies, there'd be a crash every week. And I, and I don't throw that out softly in that in commercial aviation worldwide, there are less than 600 fatalities a year worldwide. On our highways, there's 40,000 fatalities a year just mm. in the U.S. alone. Mm. Well, so, so there are lessons to learn from aviation. And you can't, it is, a, it is dynamic. We know this in business. The, the market is continuously changing and we need to continuously change. And I think communication is number one. Mm -hmm. And uh, we all know that we can learn best practices. And I think that is where the communication on best practices between airports on security and safety. The threat is continuously changing in security. And now we continuously respond. That was not the case on 9-11-2001. This has been a production of MameBiz. Find out more about this podcast and other MameBiz media products at mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank and Maine Technology Institute, or MTI. The MameBiz podcast team includes Renee Cordes, Will Hall, Allison Nason, and Andrea Tetzlaff. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedanka. Logo and marketing design by Matt Selva. Subscribe to the MameBiz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2022.